Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Reading this morning from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. John is writing the words of Jesus in verse 1 when Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the wisdom and the life that comes from the text. Well, we don't worship the Bible, we worship the God of the Bible, and through Scripture, we know rightly who you are, and we can relate to you. And we can come before you in all sincerity and in truth. And we thank you for this this morning. Ask that you anoint this sermon to find your word into our hearts, that we would be transformed a little more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you read the Old Testament, we'll see that God is known by many titles. I don't know how many titles there are in the Old Testament of God, but there are a lot of them. <clears throat> He's called El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. He is Adonai, Lord and Master. There are numerous extensions, at least nine that I found, of the word Jehovah. He's Jehovah Nisi. It means the Lord is my banner. He is Jehovah Rapha the Lord that heals, and so on. But God in the Old Testament does have a personal name. And that name has four letters in it. It's the personal name of God in the Old Testament. It's Y-H-W-H. It is unpronounceable to us. We don't know how to pronounce that. We don't know how the Jews pronounced it. They stopped pronouncing it long ago because to the Jews it was a violation to say the name of God. They thought the name of God was so sacred that to utter that name across their lips could take the name of the Lord God in vain, to say a holy name across unholy lips. 
and so they stopped saying it and so we don't know even exactly today how they would have pronounced it but it was in exodus 3 that god speaks to moses from the burning bush and then moses said to god if i come to the people of israel and say to them the god of your fathers has sent me and they ask me what is his name what shall i say to them and god said to moses i am who i am he said say this to the people of israel i am has sent me to you. And that little phrase, I am, is the name of God in the Old Testament. And the Jews would not utter that I am because it was so high and holy to the Jews. They would, in place, say things like Adonai. They would use a title to say, to talk about God. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus will utter the words, I am. He made the radical claim in John 8 that before Abraham was, I am. This is what gets him killed, is claiming to be the Yahweh of the Old Testament. This is a good litmus test for people understanding who Jesus is, which I do think is related to salvation. Do you see that Jesus Christ is the Yahweh of the Old Testament in flesh? He makes this radical claim. Anytime in the Old Testament you read in your Bibles and you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that is the name of God in the Old Testament. We, it, we take it as Lord in all capital letters. That's how you know it's referring to the personal name of God. It's there hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And Jesus stands on the scene as somebody who all they see is an ordinary man. Joseph and Mary, very common people, are his parents. We watched Jesus grow up. We watched him play with the other kids. And all of a sudden, he's making this radical claim that before Abraham was, who was their father, I am. There was no mistaking with that language who Jesus is claiming to be. He's identifying as God. There is a lot of talk today about identifying. We hear it, I identify as. And I can identify as lots of things, and so can you. If I stand here this morning and say, I identify as a drummer, that has a reality behind it. That'd be a very true statement. If I stood here this morning and said, well, I play drums, I also identify as a guitar player. I can identify that, but now I'm delusional because I don't know the first thing about playing it. But I could identify with it. I could go to the store and um, pretend. I, I could, you know, I, I could post things and say, uh, look, look how great I am. I, I could identify um, as a keyboard player. And I could sit down this morning and uh, they have those keyboards now that are like player pianos and you wouldn't know the difference. I could move my fingers across there and say, I identify as a piano player but I would be a fraud and an impersonator and a liar if I said I played piano because I don't. I identify as something. When Jesus identifies as the one who existed before Abraham, he is either delusional or he is the eternal God. What you believe about that statement will have radical implications on where you spend eternity. Jesus said in the same chapter, that unless you believe that I am He, 
you will all die in your sins unless you believe Jesus is God. Then there are the seven I am statements of Jesus in John. Seven times he says in John, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then, in the verses that we read this morning, I am the true vine. Now, what Jesus is doing this morning in John 15 is he's using a word picture that everyone would have known. He's using an analogy, like if I was going to use an analogy today, I would not use this analogy because we're not in that, we don't live in that world. But Jesus is using an analogy that everyone would have understood. Us, not so much. And I realized this morning, uh, or yesterday, preparing for this, that I don't even know what a grapevine looks like because this is what he's speaking about. He's speaking about a grapevine when he says, I am the vine. I don't even know what one looks like. I had to watch a YouTube video, Introduction to Grapevine Pruning was the title of the video, just to have a basic understanding of what Jesus is talking about. I've read this chapter for years and realized I don't even have a clue the actual, I mean, it's a word picture. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he doesn't literally mean I am a vine. I mean, the Old Testament, God's a rock, He's a fortress, He's a shield. Well, He's actually none of those things. These are word pictures. These are metaphors to say God is like a rock. He's saying, I am like a true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And so I had to watch a video just to grasp what He's talking about. And I found out that today, the very first thing you do is you go in rubber boots... You step into a tub full of chlorine water in your rubber boots and you clean your pruning shears with ethanol. That is the beginning stages of going into the vineyard. And I realize that things have changed. I don't think 2,000 years ago they were cleaning their tools with ethanol or standing in rubber boots and chlorine water, but this is what you do uh, for whatever reason. I'm not the expert, but this is what you do before you go into the vineyard. And that's where I realized that I probably learned all I want to know about pruning vines and we'll go on into the the story of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying this because in the Old Testament Israel is represented as a vine. In Jeremiah 2 Israel is the degenerate vine. The vine had become a symbol of Israel. It was even on the coins of Israel. There was an inscription of a vine during the time of the Maccabees, which would have been between the Old and the New Testament. We have the story of the Maccabees. This is where Hanukkah comes from. During that time, if you were in Israel, the coins you would have used would have had a vine on them because that had become symbolic of who Israel is. So when Jesus steps forward and says, I am the true vine, to the Jews, this would have resonated with them. What he's saying is, and this is all through the New Testament, Jesus is the true Israel. The promises that are for Israel are fulfilled. They find their fulfillment within the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the true vine. In John's Gospel, Jesus often refers to his Father, and here it is no different. So Jesus says, let's complete this picture. I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser, so if I'm the plant, my father is the gardener. This is what vine dresser would have meant. He is the gardener that comes in. And this is a picture of, of grape vines and the importance of getting fruit or grapes off the vine. And it's the, the only reason the vine exists. The vine exists for one reason, and that is to make grapes. 
to produce fruit. And it's the only reason you need the gardener. The gardener comes in and I need the gardener to take care of the vine so that I can get grapes. That was the purpose 2,000 years ago. That's the purpose in vineyards today. The gardener, the vine dresser, daily prunes and cultivates the grapevine. Even today, year-round, even when that, is not, uh, that grapevine is not producing in the wintertime, the, the gardener is still out there pruning and taking care of that vine. So Jesus says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now we know from verse 4 that we are the branches. So we have now three parts. Jesus is the vine. He says, my father is the vine dresser. And you, us, we are the branches. And if we are the branches, you only get two options in life as the branch. You are either not bearing fruit and cast into the fire, or you're bearing fruit and you get pruned by the vine dresser. You get cut back. Only eternity will tell how much of what we call struggles and challenges in this life are in reality the Father pruning the branches so that we can bear fruit. Let me say that again. Only eternity will tell the struggles, the trials, the things we face in this life are in reality the Father doing what Jesus just said He does, and that is pruning us so we can bear more fruit. We don't like it, it's painful, but ultimately the Father wants us to bear fruit. So hear the words of the writer of Hebrews. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastens every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you like sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons." Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful. In the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Nobody likes to be disciplined from their father. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I, I heard a preacher one time say that God, he goes, God doesn't, he never disciplined me. He doesn't chasten me. And it's like, have you ever read, read Hebrews 12? Like, God disciplines, He chastens the ones He loves so that we can share in His holiness. I had a preacher one time talking about something that he went through with his, with his children, with his son, and he said, I don't know why God did, did this to me. He said, I'd never treat my children like that, talking about how God was treating him. Like, read your Bible. God disciplines us. 
We go through things sometimes that are simply the discipline of the, from the Lord, not so He can spank us and punish us because He's angry at us. He does it for our own benefit, for our own good. Why? So we can share in His holiness. In other words, so we can become more like Him. So this is the same idea as what Jesus is talking about, the Father does in pruning the branches. In the wintertime, the time when the fruit does not grow, the vine dresser in a vineyard will cut back up to 90% of the plant. This vine that's growing wild, the, the vine dresser, the gardener, will come in there with his shears and he will prune, he will cut away 90% of that plant. Looks like he's killing it. It's just, it's ugly. It has all these stubs all over it. And it's just, but why? because this is what it takes to bear fruit. The psalmist said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor seats in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. That's what we want to do. We want to yield our fruit in our season. God help us all to be blessed in the sense that we produce our fruit in our season. Our leaves do not wither and everything that we do will prosper. And that kind of person delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on God's law night and day. Jesus said, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So let's look at verse 4. Verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch. So here it is, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. If you have a grapevine, and you have a branch, unless that branch is directly connected to that vine, it's not bearing fruit. If you cut it off, that branch, it's going to die, it will not bear fruit. This is the, the picture that Jesus is trying to get across to it. We call this mutual indwelling. I abide or I dwell in Christ and He dwells within me. And this mutual indwelling is not temporary. We are in Christ now and Christ is in us now. It is a current reality. I abide in Christ and He abides in me and that will never end. For all eternity we will abide in Him and He will abide in us. So what does this mean? He, he dwells within us. You do not go to a hotel or an Airbnb and decorate the walls. You don't rent an Airbnb and go in and say, well, I think the couch would look better on that wall. We're going to move these chairs over here. We don't do that. Why? It's because you don't dwell there. You don't abide there. It's, it's very, very temporary. The image that Jesus is getting across to us is that this is permanent. I dwell in Christ and He dwells in us and it is necessary to bear fruit. And you don't bear fruit by yourself. I think it is a warning, a danger that I've seen repeated over and over in the lives of believers. That a person comes to faith in Christ and they bear fruit when they come to faith that happens only because they came to Christ. They are now in Christ and there's things in their lives that, that shift and start going better as they should because they are now in Christ. Things start to make more sense and they, they start 
It starts working. They're bearing fruit. And then they fall into the deception of self-reliance and forget why their life changed in the first place. They start relying on self and forgetting that the reason that they're bearing this fruit is because they are abiding in Christ. I need the gospel today as much as I have ever needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. I needed the gospel to save me. I need the gospel today. I'll need the gospel tomorrow. I never stop needing the good news of who Jesus is. Jesus said, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. There is an old song that says, I need Jesus, my need I now confess. No friend like him in times of deep distress. I need Jesus, the need I gladly own. Though some may bear their load alone, yet I need Jesus. And the Course says, I need Jesus. I need Jesus every day. I need Him in the sunshine hour. I need Him when the storm clouds lower. Every day along my way, yes, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I need a friend like Him, a friend to guide when paths of life are dim. I need Jesus when foes my, sail, my soul assail. Alone I know I can fail, so I need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Today, as much as we ever had. There is nothing that stinks in the nostrils of God quite like self-righteousness. The idea that I can do this on my own. That I am somehow righteous of my own accord. I am not righteous. Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. That the only reason I'm righteous, the only reason I'm holy is because I belong to Him. I am grafted into that vine. My holiness is simply a product of God's holiness. My righteousness is simply a product of God's righteousness. It is an imputed righteousness to me. In verse 5 he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, and here's the phrase I want to, to focus on, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And this nothing means not bearing fruit. Because people do lots of things without Jesus. People tie their shoes without Jesus. People play sports and walk the dog and work a job and drive a car. People go on vacations, they mow the lawn, they shop, they eat, they sleep. And on and on, people do lots of things without Jesus. They do all these things, but without Jesus, you can do nothing. There is no true fruit with the true vine giving life to those of us who dwell in Christ so that the life of Christ is manifest in our lives. We are far more dependent on the work of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit than we will ever realize. The Apostle Paul, I love that man of God. Thank God for Paul. His life was so intertwined with Christ's life that you could not distinguish whether it was Paul's life or Christ's life. Galatians 2, hear the words of Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Whose life is that? I can't tell. I read that verse and say, is it Paul? Is it Christ? They are so intertangled with one another that what we think we see is Paul, but really Paul's dead and it's Christ living through Paul. Paul died on the road to Damascus. He died to self. He was a walking dead man. He said, I, I die daily. Those were his words. He says, I die every single day. I crucify myself on a cross every day with Christ. And so when Paul talks, I don't know who's actually, whose life it is. Is it Paul? Is it Jesus? It's so entangled, I can't tell. God rescue us from this version of Christianity that is lukewarm, watered down, filled with more of the flavor of politics than it is the aroma of heaven. And give us Christianity where Christ is supreme, where there is a God-entranced vision that leaves us in awe. Give us a Christianity that bids for us to come and die so Christ can live within us. He says in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch, and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And when he says this, remember he's speaking to Jews, they likely would have, they know their Bible, their Old Testament, maybe the words of what Ezekiel said came to their mind. And the word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make anything? Ezekiel is saying, can you take the branch from a vine and do anything other than what it's purposed for? Ezekiel said in the Old Testament, do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of the branch and the middle of it is charred, is that branch useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire had consumed it and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Israel. In other words, all of you backsliders, God says, I am throwing you in the fire just as I you take the branch off of a vine and it's good for nothing. And I will set my face against them. Well, those are words you don't ever want to hear from God. I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet again consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make their land desolate because they had acted faithlessly says the Lord God. And Jesus is taking this imagery and saying, if you do not abide in me and bear fruit, I will cut off this branch and it will be cast into the fire. Now, whether or not this is a direct reference to what we call hell, I don't know. The imagery is certainly there. There was a place in the Old Testament outside of Jerusalem. It's still there. They know where the valley is the Valley of Hinnom, or a place called Gehenna, just outside Jerusalem. It's a valley. And in the Old Testament, Gehenna was a place where the Jews would sacrifice their children by fire. When the Jews backslid, man, they really backslid. I mean, when they went off the rails to worship false gods, they would take their children out to this valley 
and they would offer their children as burnt offerings and burn their children alive unto a false god. That was the way they worshipped. This happened a lot in Old Testament Israel. This was such an offense that the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 19, he cursed this valley in Scripture. It's also possible, though we can't be positive, but maybe that this valley was a place where the city garbage was dumped in the time of Jesus and it was constantly smoldering and burning. If you read a lot of biblical commentaries and books, it will state this as fact, that this was a garbage dump outside Israel. I don't know. Uh, I think that may be iffy. We just don't know. But what we do know is it is a place where they offered children as sacrifices to false gods. Jesus takes this valley outside Jerusalem as a symbol, and 11 times Jesus uses this to describe a place of everlasting punishment. If you, do, if you are not in me, you are going to be punished eternally in Gehenna. He's using that as a, as a symbol. Mark 9, it is better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to Gehenna into the fire that shall never be quenched. Luke 12, fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into Gehenna. We would commonly call this hell in our culture. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to make one convert, and when he is converted, to make him twice as much the son of Gehenna as yourselves. The same John who writes the Gospel of John will later write the book of Revelation, and in the closing words he'll say, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he also was thrown into the lake of fire. Now I know we live in a world that mocks hell, jokes about hell, um, you know, three guys go to hell, it's the start of a joke. We joke about Satan. Last week, I mean, imagine you saw that in the media this week at the Grammys last week. You know, we're going we're gonna to have Satan, it's, you know, it's a satanic uh, act during the song of uh, during the Grammys. Um, I know that's the world we live in. They don't take hell serious, but I can tell you there is nothing funny about hell. But there is good news about hell. I always wanted to preach a sermon I never have entitled The Good News About Hell. There is wonderful news about hell. The good news about hell is that you don't have to go there. That's the good news about hell. You don't, nobody has to go there because of the gospel. What does the gospel mean? It's the good news. It's the greatest news ever. It's the good news of the kingdom of God. God has incarnation into the Son of God, the man Christ Jesus, who is man and who is God, who has come to die for our sins, to stand in place as a substitution. It is the best news in the universe and it is the reason why we don't have to be lost. Because you can abide in Christ and Christ can abide in you. And in verse 7 he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus introduces a way through which he can abide in you. Because like, how does this work? How does Christ actually abide in us? 
Now we know later that through the power of the infilling of the Holy Spirit that Christ is in us in His Spirit, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here He's saying, if my words abide in you, and I, I don't take that to just mean Scripture. It's interesting that nowhere in the Bible does the Bible refer to itself as the Word of God. We refer to the Bible as the Word of God, and I think rightfully so. I think we're right to do that. But in, the, in Scripture, Jesus is the incarnate Word of God. And so Jesus said, so I, I don't take this to, to mean when Jesus says, if my words abide in you, that it's just Scripture. But it, I do think it is Scripture. That's part of it. And it doesn't just mean knowing the Bible or quoting the Bible or understanding deep truth about the Bible. And all of those are wonderful and we should do that. But the point of knowing the Bible, of understanding the Bible, is so that you can rightly know the God of the Bible. And so that by knowing the God of the Bible, His Spirit can sanctify and transform you into His image. If you read and study the Bible and all you get is head knowledge without heart transformation, you've missed the point. Lots of people can memorize Scripture. If it does not lead you to a revelation of Jesus and to a sanctification and transformation in your own life, you've missed, like, you've missed the point of why you learned about the Bible. I use this example often, but these Old Testament scholars who really do, I mean, in terms of knowing the Old Testament, they can be brilliant Old Testament scholars, and yet some of those Old Testament scholars are not Christians. They're not believers. It's like the whole point of the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. And if these people learned everything there was to learn about the Old Testament, they never came to know Jesus, they have wasted their time and their life. They've helped other people immensely understand the Old Testament by what they publish, but the, them themselves, they've wasted their life if they miss the point of who Jesus is. If you get Scripture inside of you, it will not happen by accident. You will be intentional about your Bible if you want to read His Word or abide in you because when the Bible, this Bible has no, no equal. There's nothing that equals this Bible. There's no other book on the planet that is God's breath in writing. Paul writes to Timothy and says, King James, we learned that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. ESV is a little more literal, a little more accurate. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's the breath of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. Everything written in this book is the breath of God, the divine anointing and unction upon a man who penned words. Not as a robot. God didn't take over his hand and start writing, but at the highest level of possible divine inspiration, holy men of old, wrote this book, inerrant, infallible, when properly understood. Nothing equates to this book here. This is sacred. I was at a Barnes & Noble last week, and they had a, all bookstores usually have a, big air quotes, Christian section. This particular Barnes & Noble had a very, it just seemed larger than normal. I mean, it was, it took a good section. And I, I just started looking at titles across there, all these titles. And I thought, there is not one book on this shelf. And I saw authors there that I really, really like. 
It doesn't matter if I like the author and authors that I read, none of those authors are infallible. If I write something, not infallible. There'll be, there'll be a mistake in there somewhere. I probably said something wrong. But this book, there is no equal. And yet, even though this book has no equal, among any other book or video or radio program, it does compete for your time with everything else. It's amazing that this book has to compete in our lives. All of us competes in our lives with everything else. If you get this inside of you, it will not happen by accident. You'll have to be intentional about your Bible. <clears throat> Hear the words of Job. Neither, it's just Job 23, neither have I gone back, and I'm reading this in the King James. I think the King James gets this particular verse better than most. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. Speaking of God, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Who among us can say that about the Bible? What if we took the attitude of Job and said, God, I esteem, I value your word over the food that I eat. What if it were as foreign to us to miss reading our Bibles as it was for us to miss a meal? Well, if anybody in this room, myself included, could say that. But Job could. Job said, I have valued your word from your mouth more than my necessary food. The three meals a day I have to have, Job said, I value your word more than my food. God created a hunger in us for his word. We have to plan. We have to, to be intentional about doing this. Read your Bible slowly, carefully, prayerfully, humbly. I'm not against Bible reading plans. My only issue with a Bible reading plan is that it just becomes another box to tick for the day. It's like, I, I got four chapters I got to get through today. And man, you'll just, you'll read them and read them and read them. And you're never slowing down. You're never meditating upon it. You're not thinking about what this means. You're just ticking a box. And that's, that's why I'm, you know, say it's okay to use those, but I, I'd rather a person not use that plan if that's the way that it's going to work in their lives. It's amazing the things that we can get in debates over in social media. And a guy that I follow in social media at the first of the year said, I encourage everyone, rather than read your Bible through cover to cover this year, read the Gospel of John through five times very slowly. And oh man, he got blown up for that. I mean, he was just... Uh, and he finally said in one of the comments, he said, I would like nothing better than for people to prove me wrong and go ahead and read their Bible cover to cover this year. It's like, if, if, if you want to prove me wrong on this, then you do that by reading your Bible cover to cover, then I'm okay being wrong. It's like, there is no losing in this situation. And, but I, I understand what John, um, his name's John Redmond, I understand what John was saying. He's a, he's a clinical, Christian clinical psychiatrist. I understand what he was saying is that don't just blast through the Bible. It's not an easy book to read for any of us. We get that. So read it slowly and carefully. Most important, read it prayerfully. Nothing goes with reading the Word like a heart that is talking to God while you're reading the Word. It's okay not to comprehend everything that you read. It's okay to say, I don't know what that means. 
We should often see things in the Bible that leave us in awe of God and His glory. There's a verse that I skipped over a while ago. I think it's in verse 3. And, and that verse in, in John 15, that is kind of a, you know, now you are clean through the Word. It's kind of out of place in the conversation. And even the smartest commentaries don't really know what to do with it. I listened to a sermon last week, didn't even know he was going to be on John 15. And this is a guy who's president of a seminary. And he got to verse 3 and he said, I don't really know what to do with this verse. And he said, I'm not going to say a lot about it because I'm not, I don't know what to do with it. And he said, and it might be the most important verse in this chapter, which means that I just completely messed this sermon up, but I don't know what to do with it. What's he, what he's saying is, I'm the president of a seminary and I don't know, you know, he's a guy about my age, but he's saying, I don't know what to do with this. Like, I don't understand everything in the Bible. That's okay. What we should do is often see things that we just step back and say, I don't know exactly what that means, but it left me in a sense of awe. Like I, I have a sense of awe of God in His glory. Jesus says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Don't miss part two of that verse. Ask, that's what we call, what do we call it when we ask God something? It's, we call it prayer. Jesus said we have not because we ask not. So we ask God for things. Jesus said, ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it, shall be, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one that seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door shall be opened to you. Two more sections in this chapter I want to talk about. By this, verse 8, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. By this my Father is glorified. The single most impactful phrase in my life over the past 15 years has been this phrase God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him I've spent 15 years thinking about that phrase God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him it is on the basis that we all every one of us we desire pleasure and happiness and that when we find our happiness in God and our hope in God and our pleasure in God, then God is glorified in us. It has been dubbed, this idea, Christian hedonism is the idea that was dubbed by John Piper. And 12 years ago or so, it radically reoriented how I understood God when I saw this idea. Not just in Jonathan Edwards, not just in C.S. Lewis, but in the Bible my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. When you bear fruit in your life, God is the one that gets the glory. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. I bear fruit, God is glorified. I find success not in this world, but by Jesus sharing His life in the vine with me and my branches. And when that happens, God gets the glory. And then Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. <clears throat> the last 
section of this chapter. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in you, that these things, here's the verse I want to focus on in closing, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, finally at the end, Jesus gives the purpose of what he just said. Everything that I just said, he said, these things I spoke to you for one reason, that your joy may be full. Does any greater joy exist than the joy of Jesus? This is why I so strongly encourage people to not settle for slapstick, glib, goofy, silly church. Because there is a joy that exists in Christ that is so much greater than all of that. Abide in Christ and the joy of Jesus will flow from Him into you. And it is a joy that is not determined by your circumstances. In the midst of suffering, you can exclaim, I have a deep and abiding joy that this world did not give me and this world cannot take away. The book of 1 Peter is written to believers who are in exile and suffering persecution. And it is in a letter to a church that is suffering that Peter writes, Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is unexpressible, inexpressible, and filled with glory. We have joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. We are a rejoicing people in the midst of suffering. Paul said, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, and yet we are true we are as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing anything. Let that be the trademark of us as a people, that we are a sorrowful people who are always rejoicing. We're going to lay a foundation of Scripture that is a thousand miles deep so that when the storm does hit and a storm will hit in your life, your house won't slide off the side of the hill. It's on solid footing. It's built upon the solid rock of God's Word. And so that when your storm does hit and your storm will hit, it's a guarantee everybody in this room will face storms in life. When it hits, not a matter of if but when, you will have the capacity to exult, to revel in the joy that is found in the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Cancer will hit us as a people. Job loss will hit us as a people. Marriage trouble will hit us as a people. Financial difficulty will hit us as a people. Interpersonal relationship struggles will hit us as a people. Church dissension will hit us as a people. And when it does, we can stand and say, we are sorrowful, yet we're always rejoicing. Why? Because of John 15. I abide in Christ, and Christ abides in me. My joy is full. Let's stand this morning. We'll prepare to close in a song in a minute. Let's pray. Father, our greatest desire this morning 
is that as a people, individually, we would abide in you. I don't even claim to be able to comprehend all what that means to abide in Christ. Lord, I know that your Holy Spirit is within us. We know that you dwell in us, your words are in us, and we know that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you abide in us. But Lord, we want to abide in you. We want to climb up into who you are as a fortress, as a safe place. Lord, that that mutual indwelling would produce fruit in our lives. And we know and understand that we're going to be disciplined, we're going to be pruned back, we're going to experience things in life that we don't understand, that we shake our head at, and just we, we don't know why we're going through that. But Lord, we trust you as the sovereign Lord of our lives. Lord, that you hold us in your hand, that none of us should perish, that Lord, that you are keeping your hand upon us and guiding us every day. Uh, our, our steps, we may not know, we may not understand why, but Lord, we simply trust you. Our faith and confidence is in you, that you are leading us and guiding us in paths of righteousness and in paths that will help us to bear even greater fruit and ultimately to be a greater witness for your name and for the gospel. And for this, we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this morning.